This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here, of course, to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic. The race is still on for the vaccine. First drug company to get one on the market is in for big payday. And depending on when this happens, some politicians can stand to benefit. So are corners going to be cut to rush a vaccine to the market? Doctors are still finding more out about this virus just about every day. So we are going to hear from an ER doctor about how this learning can lead to better treatments And of course, save lives. A change in payroll taxes could help people struggling right now to pay their bills, their rent, mortgages. But there's a catch because there's always a catch with taxes and there is always a catch with the year 2020. That's why I don't like taxes. (laughs) Wall Street and Main Street really are two different worlds right now. We'll get into why stocks are soaring despite the unemployment numbers. But let's start with that vaccine, if the first one out is going to be safe. Alex John London, director of the Center for Ethics and Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. So, Alex, what are the odds that some corners end up getting cut? Well, the odds that corners get cut is going to be determined partly by what the standards are that the FDA says that any vaccine has to meet before it can be approved and used in practice. So the the key to uh, a healthy um, you know, innovation and the availability of safe and effective products is a high standard for assurance that those products are safe and effective before they go out to market. Well, the, the, the thing, of course, is that, as you know, uh, the polling so far, if they're reliable, the polls are seem, seeming to indicate that a lot of Americans in particular are very cautious and very skeptical about any of the vaccines. Uh, and, of course, there's a hardcore group of folks that don't like any vaccines at all. So don't we have to be almost doubly cautious before a vaccine is announced for COVID just to convince those people that it's something beneficial to get? Absolutely. I think the the politicization of a COVID-19 vaccine is a lose-lose scenario. You can have the most effective vaccine in the world, and it's not going to get us out of the pandemic if people won't use it. And as you said, the recent polling shows that people, something like three-quarters of Americans, depending on what poll you look at, um, think that the vaccine development process has been politicized, and other polls show something like a third of people who are polled uh, would be unwilling to use the vaccine Um, And, you know, this is really fundamentally a public health issue, but vaccine hesitancy, the unwillingness of people to use vaccines that are on the market that are established to be safe and effective, World Health Organization says vaccine hesitancy is itself a major public health problem. So it's important not only that corners not be cut, but that there be no perception that corners are being cut, because even if the drug developers who have billions of dollars uh, uh, at stake um, do it right. The perception that corners would be cut could itself contribute to extending uh, the pandemic. The fear that we see is that it would get one of these emergency youth use authorizations like, that's hard to say, uh, like some of the, the, the plasma treatments or things like that out there. But you really can't do that with a vaccine because you have to put it through its paces, correct? You have to get all of the possible 
combinations in age, race, pre-existing conditions, and then you multiply that all the way up to try and see that it's safe for everybody. Because you don't want to start giving this to people and then figure out in two weeks that for some groups, maybe there's a problem. So, you know, I think it's important for listeners to understand that when you hear that these vaccine candidates have been established to be safe in early phase testing, um, you know, there are about uh, nine candidates that are entering phase three trials right now. Um, the evidence from early phase testing shows you that nobody who got the vaccine had a major adverse event right away. Now, that's really good. And then we can see also that they provoke an immune response. That's really good. What phase three studies have to do is show that that immune response that they provoke actually translates in the real world into disease prevention. And then, as you said, we got it. We're going to give this vaccine to hundreds of millions, potentially billions of healthy people. So we want to know what its safety profile is in lots of groups, in children, in elderly people, in middle-aged people, people with various comorbidities, you know, with other diseases who take other drugs and so on. So the phase three trials that, that are going to generate that evidence, um, they're going to enroll between 30,000 and 40,000 people. Some of these early phase trials have enrolled a couple of dozen. Um, and those trials, these phase three trials, they take some time. You know, the, the one of the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine alone, has to, be, has to give people two injections 28 days apart. Um, and, you know, you get randomized in that trial to the vaccine or a placebo. And in order to know that the vaccine works, it's going to take some time for some of the people in this trial to go out into the world and be exposed to the virus. And so that some people who got the placebo, uh, you know, contract the virus. And then we look and we see how many people who got the vaccine contract the virus. And we hope that it's much, much less, but it might not be. Yeah, you got to compare. Alex, John London, directs the Center for Ethics Policy, Carnegie Mellon University. Alex, thanks. Doctors and scientists are finding new and different ways to treat virus patients, but there is still a very long way to go. KNX's Dick Helton and Vicki Moore talks to Dr. Angelique Campen, an ER specialist at Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank, a clinical professor at UCLA. She explained how there's so much we're still learning about this virus. Different people have different physiologies. So some people have more of what's called an ACE receptor in their lungs or in their brain. And their, their lungs or their brain are hit a lot harder than others. Uh, but this brings up an important point, that this is not uh, just like the flu. We are seeing long-term effects, long-term effects on your, on your breathing system, long-term effects on your ability to concentrate, um, on your brain, on your uh, clotting system in your, in your bloodstream. There, there are significant long-term effects. Let's talk about vaccines for a second. The story caught my eye this morning about doctors and scientists taking part in a DIY system of vaccines. You are a doctor, you're a clinical professor at UCLA, as we mentioned. What do you know about this whole DIY system? So, yes, I've read about that as well. And, you know, I've said it before, creating the vaccine is not the hard part. What that is, is simply presenting a piece of the offending virus or bacteria to your body so that your body can, can have an immune response to it. So what uh, different scientists and virologists are doing on their own is trying to do that and experiment on themselves or the people around them. So what I've seen is many are 
sequencing, uh, recreating the surface protein, the little spike protein on the coronavirus that it uses to enter your cell, and using that to create antibodies in their body. They either spray it up their nose or inject it under their skin. This is very grassroots, though. It's not, a, it's not typical science that's randomized and controlled. So in that way, the response that they may see in their body may not apply to the whole population or different ethnicities or different ages. But, you know, it is a start. And as long as they're basing their research and actions on science and not making too far-reaching claims that aren't substantiated, then more power to them. I commend them for trying to help this fight. One thing I will caution the public, though, is the, the, the hard part about a vaccine is studying it over time. And no matter how many resources you put into it, you just can't make time go faster. So the harm is that, that the wrong type of vaccine can create a serious immune response in your body can create antibodies that turn around and attack yourself or make your body respond so that the next time you do see that virus, your immune response is overwhelming and you die from your own response. So that is really the long-term study that has to happen. So uh, hearing that answer from you, uh, it it seems to me you probably uh, are troubled uh, by this rush uh, to come up with a vaccine uh, by the end of this year, um, you know, all this fast-tracking that seems to be going on uh, to come with a vaccine that might be okay, but we wouldn't at that point really know. Well, you know, we, we just have to study it. We have to put in the time and effort. Uh, but I am skeptical about having a, a, a safe vaccine in such a short period of time. You had mentioned um, elevators earlier, so I want to go back to that because I was recently at Cedars. I had to go to a doctor's office for something for one of my kids. And, you know, people are kind of gathering outside the elevator, and I'm going, well, how many people should get in there at one time? We're all used to crowding into elevators before, you know, and I'd always squeeze in. But now it's like, is it one person? Is it two people? What do you recommend? So you want to be able to maintain that distance from someone. So I use that that example that it, it spreads by droplet, but it's not that you're going to walk into an empty elevator and catch the virus from someone who had been riding it before you. The virus just doesn't sit in the air and float there and wait for you. It comes out in your breath, in the, in the fluids in your breath, and, and falls to the ground. So, yes, you don't want to be shoulder to shoulder with someone. You want to be able to maintain as much distance as possible and you want to make sure that they have their mask, their barrier over their secretion. I, I, it's funny that um, that question came up because I was in an elevator going to my dentist um, about a month ago. And um, uh, people were getting on and I said, okay, that I was playing traffic crop, basically. I said, all right, you go there in that corner, you get in that corner, you, I'm in this corner, you get in that corner, that's it, shut the doors. You know, and, and kind of, you know, sort of have to do those things, take it upon yourself. But talking about um, vaccines and things, we know that the flu season, the real flu season, uh, the regular flu season is coming toward us and it's going to show up uh, sooner than later. I've been getting a lot of questions from people, just kind of um, folks that I know who are asking me, when's the best time to get your flu shot? Now, the most recent um, uh, information that I got from a medical professional was 
late September, early October. You don't want to get it too soon because you don't know how long the flu season is going to last into next year. What's your advice? So here's the dilemma. It's true. Once you get the vaccine, your immunity can wane over time. So you want to time it right. But but what, after you get the vaccine, it takes at least two weeks for it to become effective. It doesn't become effective immediately. So the current thinking is those people who are most vulnerable, we don't want to be too complacent and miss the onset. We don't, we don't want to have people get it too late. So the, the, the answer for that is you go ahead and get the vaccine. It is available now. Uh, it's very easy to get. Um, and if it seems that the flu season is lasting longer, you can get a booster. You can get an additional vaccine in January or February. So That's what what's being recommended for elderly people. So what you're saying now, if you're vulnerable, get it now. Get it now. All right. All right, Doc. Thanks very much, Dr. Angeli Kampen. Good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? The good news. Okay. Good news is that many of us will take home some extra money in our paychecks. Oh, all right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's needed. That's needed, by the way, for people struggling to catch up on things like bills and credit card payments in the uh, pandemic. Oh, I get to deliver the bad news. Yeah, go ahead. It's that you still owe the government the money. No. <laughs> no, I don't want to give it back. So the president ordered a deferral in the collection of payroll taxes till the end of the year. Robert Delgado is the principal in charge of compensation and benefits group at the global tax auditing firm KPMG. So, Robert, uh, sounds good. And then it really isn't. That's right. Uh, it definitely is a deferral. It is not a forgiveness, as, as you've noted. And a number of employers are struggling with that right now. Um, the guidance that employers received really only came about on Friday. So it really gave one business day to ramp up for this. Uh, of course, systems require a, a lot more lead time uh, to really ramp up and, and develop and uh, implement these things. And so a number of employers, even those who are considering doing it, uh, probably won't be ready to do it until maybe the second paycheck at the earliest in September. And uh, it is at their option. It's not something employers are required to do. So some employers looking at this uh, do see this deferral is something that is uh, has a double-edged sword on it, right? So it's a good thing in a sense of employee relations for this year, but then come next year, employers are responsible for double withholding and depositing all those taxes from January to April. So in that sense, not great employee relations come next year. And so a lot of employers are looking at that and trying to tiptoe along the lines here and figure out exactly what they want to do. Do they want to actually go down the path of deferral or do they want to do something different here or just you know move on altogether and, and not go down this route because of the potential negative implications to their workforce? Yeah, what are some of the scenarios if you don't want to be the person handing out paychecks next year that goes, guess what, you got to pay double now or, or withhold double, and this was a temporary loan? Because I, I guess maybe Congress forgives it and then you don't have to, and that would be nice, but there's no guarantee of that happening. Yeah, there's certainly no guarantee of that happening. And so a number of employers looking at that are uh, are going down the path of, of not enacting the deferral uh, simply because it, it could put employees in a very difficult situation come next year, particularly when we're talking about uh, January through April, which follows the holidays and the wherewithal for paying those additional taxes and having withholdings taken out 
is a particularly time-sensitive matter when we're talking about uh, the holiday spending that goes on. And come January, getting a paycheck that is that is decreased actually uh, is not a great scenario. So employers are concerned about that aspect of it, and uh, also this does make employers liable for the withholding and deposit. And so let's say employers do go down the path of deferral this year, uh, if employees actually uh, you know leave the job or sever or pursue other avenues of employment. Uh, employers will have to figure out how to come up with that withholding and deposit, either on that last paycheck or may simply have to uh, have to pursue former employees to get those amounts to deposit it. And in the absence of being able to do that, they nonetheless have to make those deposits by May 1st or be subject to interest and penalties themselves. So, uh, you know, not a great incentive for employers in that scenario. Well, of course, the, the thinking from the president for doing this was because Congress had not yet and still hasn't come up with a second stimulus package was to put more money in people's pockets in the short term so they could pump that money back into the economy. But if a lot of employers, because it's so complicated, decide not to do it or they do it and people get that extra money but think, you know, maybe I should just sort of put this aside so I have that money to pay it back to the government a little bit later on. It doesn't really accomplish anything, does it? Yeah, it's it's probably, you know, in terms of stimulus to the system, uh, it does have a little bit of where it, it can give something now, but then take it away very quickly down the road. And, and so... Uh, that is a concern for employers thinking about this and the impact on employees. And then, as you mentioned, the complications of it are something that those who design systems and operate systems are thinking about as well. Uh, third-party providers are typically utilized for payroll, and a number of third-party providers have indicated, just given the short-term nature of this, that they their systems uh, simply aren't going to be set up and running to, to accommodate this, and employers will have to do so uh, on a manual level, so they'll have to to, to manually handle their their payroll if they want to enact a deferral, and so that does in and of itself present a complication. A number of employers thinking about it and the the expenses associated with it and the unanswered questions here have uh, also considered uh, whether they would potentially simply offer additional benefits to employees, set up a fund to maybe benefit employees who are, are really suffering right now or have a, a nominal uh, bonus for employees uh, rather than go down the route of a deferral from that perspective. And so that's that's part of the conversation here. Uh, a lot of companies haven't landed on those decisions at this point, but it is part of the conversation. Robert Delgado with the global tax auditing firm KPMG. Millions of people have filed for unemployment. Lots of people struggling to pay rent and need government help to stop evictions. There's no additional economic help in sight in the form of another stimulus payment. The fallout from this pandemic and the shutdowns have really been felt just about everywhere. Except Wall Street. Stocks tanked in March and April. They've since recovered. They're now at pre-pandemic levels. So why the divide? KYW's Matt Leon talked to Scott Deakle, business and economics professor at Ursinus College, and asked that same basic question. It's best if you think of the stock market as representing investors' expectations for the future of corporate profits. And if you take a step back and think about that, you're thinking about the future 
They're not thinking about the present. So the value of the market indicators are going to represent what people are thinking about, you know, months down the road. And it's also confined to profits of corporations that have issued stock. And that's also not the same as the rest of the economy. Uh, a corporation can still earn profits even when 10 or 15 percent of the population is unemployed. And they can still make money when people have low incomes. I mean, they can lay off all of those unemployed workers <laughs> and cut their costs and continue to sell their products at a price above what it costs to make them. So in this economy, it's a little jarring to see that the stock market is back at record highs. Intuitively, we want to think that the market should reflect where the economy is now. But in fact, investors are trying to get ahead of the game. They, they know that the economy now isn't doing well. But what we see from the market is that a lot of investors think that the economy will be better in six months to a year from now. Some people use the stock market as a leading indicator. Mm -hmm. Is that dangerous because it, of what you said and it doesn't really deal with a lot of facts on the ground? I guess, can you get a false confidence as a policymaker mm -hmm. if you're paying too much attention to what the, the numbers at the bottom of the CNBC screen are, are mm -hmm. telling you and thinking things are much better than they are? Right. I, I think it would be dangerous to use the market as your only indicator. It should be one of several things you're looking at to predict where the future of the economy will be. Uh, markets are well known to be subject to bubbles. And we see some indications that there may be some stocks and maybe even sectors or even the market of the whole are going through uh, a period of at least overvaluation and, and maybe what we would even call a bubble, a period of uh, severe overvaluation. Um, and when we think about things that make us think we might have uh, overvaluation in the department, excuse me, in the market, um, a couple things come to mind. One is, uh, can be summarized as Robin Hood. Now, Robin Hood, you know, we used to think of that as the old time, you know, English hero who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. But nowadays, Robin Hood is an app for phones that allows you to very easily and with no commission, trade stocks. So anyone who's got a smartphone can download the Robinhood app. They can very easily transfer some money from their bank account to Robinhood. And they can, within a period of about 24 to 36 hours, start trading stocks. Uh, and there are no fees for trading those stocks. And Robinhood was growing quickly before COVID set in. But since COVID set in, it's really skyrocketed. Uh, and you, it's easy to come up with explanations for why. You've got millions of people sitting at home. Uh, some people got, or most people got stimulus checks. And if they held onto their jobs, they have some extra money to play with as a result. And uh, also, you can link it to the disappearance of sports gambling for several months. So uh, a lot of people didn't have basketball and uh, baseball games to bet on. And uh, the stock market, uh, while I don't consider it gambling, uh, does make a pretty nice substitute for gambling on sports. And so uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of uh, people getting into Robin Hood, getting into trading the stock market with their stimulus checks or whatever extra money they have lying around because they're not going on vacation this year and getting into the market. 
And there's a, a set of stocks, particularly in the high tech sector, that seem to be overvalued. And uh, they also correspond to uh, the stocks that happen to be the most popular among Robinhood users. So, so you've, you've got a few elements uh, coming into play here uh, with the stock market that makes it a very interesting situation to assess. I mean, like I said to your first question, to some extent, investors see that uh, or predict that the economy is going to improve in the next six months to a year and that corporate profits can stay strong even when people are unemployed. And at the same time, you've got some people jumping into the market, too, who weren't players uh, before March. That's also driving share prices higher. The coronavirus is spreading across India. And of course, that has many people scared and worried. They want to know what the future holds for them and their families. That's why many people in the country are flocking to fortune tellers, which include uh, astrologers, palm readers and tarot card readers. A well-known astrologer and spiritual consultant to politicians, Bollywood stars, and professional cricketers says his business has risen 40% since the COVID-19 outbreak. His prediction, India's COVID-19 crisis will significantly improve. So, like, the the tarot cards is probably easy because you can just put them on the table. What about, like, a palm reader? That's well within six feet of distance. You have to uh, stay very far apart. (laughs) You stick your hand way out. Yeah. Crystal balls are okay. Exactly. That's easier. It's safer. Clean them with the Clorox. Yeah. This has been Coronavirus Daily. Tealies might work. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And Stitcher. I'm looking at the palm of my palm. I I can't tell anything except I I have some ink that I sponge on. Yeah, got my pen all over mine too. What does that mean?